0: ephesians chapter 5 we'll read verses 15 through 21 to get the context look carefully then how you walk not as unwise but as wise making the best use of the time because the days are evil therefore do not be foolish but understand what the will of the lord is and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery but be filled with the spirit addressing one another in psalms And hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we just sang it, but would you now speak? Would you use your words spoken through a broken vessel to bring encouragement, to bring hope, to bring faith, to bring renewed joy? In you, it's in your son's name we pray, Amen. Well, in 1934, a woman named Hannah Whitehall Smith wrote a book called *Experiments in Guidance*. In it, she tells true and interesting ways that Christians thought they experienced God's guidance. One woman would wake up each morning, and before she got out of bed, she would pray and ask God if she should get up or not, and she would not stir until she heard the voice tell her to dress as she put on each article of clothing she asked the Lord whether or not she should put it on often she thought the Lord was guiding her to put on her right shoe but not her left sometimes she was to put on both socks but no shoes another lady that she wrote about was a guest in someone's home and the host accidentally left some money out on a table and left the room she had a strong impression that, the God, that God was guiding her to take the money in order to illustrate the text of the Bible that says, all things are yours. When the host came back and asked about the money, the lady lied about it. Well, not too surprising, later when it was found out she had taken it, the host threw her out as a thief. Yet while both those stories are quite absurd, they sadly are not too different from the way that many Christians try to determine what God wants them to do. I've shared before that when I was a preteen and teen, sometimes if I wanted to know what God wanted me to do, I'd say, if God wants me to do this, I'll look at the clock and it'll be an odd number. And I'd look, and you know what? If I didn't want it to be what I wanted, I'd say, well, we'll do two out of three to really know what God wants. Somehow, we have these ways of thinking we can figure out, how do we figure out what God wants us to do? But do we even need guidance though? I mean, aren't we supposed to, forge our own path aren't we supposed to do whatever seems true to us well as with anything our culture often sends us mixed messages because on one hand we're told just do what you think is right but on the other hand in so many areas of life we have counselors we have guides we have advisors we have school counselors we have college and career counselors guidance counselors financial advisors mental health counselors personal trainers and we go to doctors, In other words, on the one hand, we claim to be able to figure out life on our own, and then on the other hand, we wisely say, you need to talk to others to figure out what is best. And as Christians, we know that God guides us, for He is our good shepherd who leads us besides still waters. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. So God does lead us, God does guide us, But how does he do that? Should we do like the first lady we heard about and pray for a voice to tell us what to do? Should we do like the second lady and wait for an impression upon our heart to know if this is the thing we are to do or not? You know, we have sometimes very important decisions. Should I move? Should I get a new job? Should I marry this person? Sometimes trivial decisions. Should I put both shoes on my feet? Either way, we want to honor God. How do we know how to do that? We're considering this because as we've been working our way through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we've come to this section, chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. And it began, look carefully then how you walk. And after that command, Paul gave three sets of ways that we need to be careful how we walk. And they all have the same pattern. They all say, not this, but this. So last week we looked at not being unwise, but being wise. And then he went on to talk about time. This morning, we're going to see not being foolish, but knowing God's will. And then, Lord willing, in a couple weeks, not getting drunk with wine, but instead being filled with the Spirit. And so, this morning, to begin to look at how we know God's will, we're going to have two sections. You can see this on the back of your bulletin. First, God's will of decree and desire. And then, second, God's guidance. But first, God's will of decree and desire. So verse 17 is calling us not to be fools, but to understand what the will of the Lord is. And the Bible talks about God's one will being expressed in two different ways. Now that might seem like a very odd thing to say, but all Christians intuitively know this, because what did Jesus teach us to pray? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's implying, in heaven, God's will always happens. But on earth, God's will doesn't always happen. That's why we pray about it. And we're going to make all kinds of errors, and we don't sound like, well, what's being said here? And Christians have, I believe, helpfully divided God's one will into his will of decree. That's God's eternal plan that always happens, his will of decree And his will of desire, that's God's moral law, how he wants us to live as wise people. And let me give some Bible verses that show both of these ideas in the Bible. First, God's will of decree is what God has declared for all eternity will happen, and it does happen. Just flip back a few chapters, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. There it reads, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. God works all things, not 8 out of 10, not 99 out of 100, not 999,999 out of a million. God works all things according to the counsel of His will. Every single action that occurs in this universe happens because God, because God wills it. Christians have referred to this as God's sovereignty. The truth that God rules over every event in human history, whether bad or good. And not only that He rules over it, but everything happens according to God's will and plan. This is what Jesus was communicating in Matthew 10, 29 when He said, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? If you go outside and see a bird dead, it is because God has willed it. Or in Daniel 4.35, King Nebuchadnezzar prays that God does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Nebuchadnezzar rightly declares that no one in heaven or earth can stop God's will. Yet, you might think, but people do that all the time because we're sinning. God doesn't want us to sin, does He? Well, no. So clearly we are breaking His will. But that gets to Jesus' prayer, His exhortation, to pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven because God's will does not always get accomplished on earth. But that leads us to our second understanding of God's will, and that is his will of desire. So his will of decree always comes to pass, but his will of desire refers to (coughs) living wisely and following his moral commands such as the Ten Commandments. Thus we can ask, does God ever want you to steal? No. It's very clear. The Seventh Commandment says, you shall not steal. That is God's will for humans. But we all know that sometimes humans, maybe sometimes us, steal. Thus God's will of desire does not always happen on earth because God allows humans the freedom to break His will of desire. You know, this is the whole point of the prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying, God, would you help us and others to want to live out on earth what you want and always does happen in heaven. So, all of that, to kind of explain here in verse 17, when Paul says, Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about God's will of desire. You know, except for some future prophecies, God hasn't told us what He has decreed will happen. However, He has given us His will of desire through His word. And that will of desire is sometimes quite clear. You shall not covet. Yet, in the application of it, sometimes it's not clear. You decide to get a new vehicle or a new house. Well, is that because you're coveting? Or is that because you're a good steward who wants to not take care of one that's falling apart? Or, we know you shall not murder, but there's less clear at times Commands like, you shall love your neighbor, be generous and share. Well, if a neighbor keeps asking you for tools and they sometimes never return them and sometimes return them in bad shape, is it ever fine as a Christian to go? No, not going to give you another tool. There's not a clear answer. And so we're praying, look, God, would you help us to know your will in this matter? These are wisdom issues in which we have to draw from principles of God's word and then apply them to the different circumstances that we encounter in this life. And in seeking to follow God's will of desire, we have to look at these overarching principles. And I want to mention two that will be very helpful in guiding us. First, Psalm 111 verse 10 says, the, I'm going to leave it blank, of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding what is it of the lord that gives us wisdom the fear of the lord now many today almost choke when they hear fear of the lord for they imagine what that what that means is some kid terrified because they have a dad that always goes off the handle well that's not what it's talking about rather let me tell another, give another verse that talks about fear and we'll then contrast this and understand it better because Proverbs 29:25 says the fear of man lays a snare but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Now when it talks there about the fear of man it's not talking about being a cowering in the corner because you're afraid of someone rather it's talking about your life being controlled by and dominated by someone else. We've all experienced this. You see someone you start to like them and then you start to notice everywhere they are you may go to a party and you're not staring at them because you have some social awareness but you're kind of always aware where they are in the room they tell a joke and you always laugh before everyone they are kind of controlling you because you care about them or think about one of humans worst fears public speaking what are we nervous of That we're going to say something, or we're going to do something, and then everyone in the audience is going to either like, oh boy, they're an idiot, or they're all going to laugh at you, not with you. We're being controlled by the thoughts of others. And so the biblical idea of fearing someone is not just this kind of cowering dread. It's that you're controlled by them. That they're the most important thing to you at that moment. And God's word is telling us, look, if we're going to live wisely, if we're going to know his will, well, that begins with fearing God. Or in other words, that God controls us. He is the most important thing to us, that our life is oriented around God. Proverbs 3, 5 through 7 says it this way. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. In other words, you're living your life oriented towards him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. So fearing God is living a life knowing that the one to whom I'm ultimately going to give account is God. It's not any other person. Let's see one other big principle. Flip over to the book of 1st thessalonians 1st thessalonians chapter 4 so we're in ephesians the next book is philippians and colossians so right after that 1st thessalonians not far in your bible 1st thessalonians chapter 4 verse 3 and if you ever want to have a kind of fun conversation with someone you can always say i know what god's will is for your life and how can you say that well let me read to you 1st thessalonians 4 chapter 3 for this is the will of god Couldn't get any clearer. Your sanctification. God's will for every single person in this universe is their sanctification. Well, that's just a big word saying that God's desire is that we would be sanctified. The root there is holy. In other words, that we would become more and more like God every day. That His character that being the things that we can do, being loving and compassionate and caring, that those would flow out of our lives more. Well, why? Because the more we're like God, the more we're a blessing to others, and the more we enjoy life. I mean, just imagine if everyone you knew this next week was twice as good at loving, was twice as compassionate, was twice as patient. Wouldn't this next week be so much more enjoyable? And God wants us to be sanctified because He wants us to enjoy life and to glorify Him. And so these two broad principles, live with God as the foremost of your life, and live a life that's trying to become more like God, those will help us as we seek to know God's will for our life. Now those two obviously are not going to answer every single question you have. Because we're going to have specific questions. Should I buy this car? Should I go to this vacation? But they will give us a purpose, a direction, so that we're not, less, we're not just aimlessly flopping from decision to decision. Well, before we move to the next section, God's guidance, let me point out two wonderful effects of understanding and believing these ideas about God's will of decree and God's will of desire. First, if you believe this, you can have great freedom, because there's only one person to ultimately seek to please. In you know, the summer before my junior year in high school, I got my first regular, hourly-paid job. Worked for HEB, a grocery store in San Antonio, and working in the middle of the summer in San Antonio, pushing a cart out onto black asphalt is not exactly the most enjoyable thing to do, though the paycheck's great. And I thought I was working pretty hard. I don't know, I probably wasn't. But I came in and my assistant manager came up and said, Jeremy, I need you to work faster. Okay, work faster. So I start working faster, bagging groceries, taking them out. While later it comes up again, I really need you to work faster. Okay, I thought I was working faster. All right, start working faster. Start taking groceries out, right, coming in, I'm sweating, it's hot. Comes up later. I need you to work faster. And I'm starting like I'm work I'm sweating here. I'm I'm trying. And then later, he came to me again, and he said, I really need you to work faster. And I wanted to, and thankfully I didn't want to scream, what do you want from me? Do you not like see the sweat pouring down my face? And yet, we've all had people like that in our life. You do everything they say, and they say, well, that wasn't good enough. Can you do a little bit more? Can you do a little bit faster? Oh, I actually wanted it this way. You didn't understand. And you're always wondering, what do you want from me? God has always had one thing He wants, and He's made that known to us. So if you know His will through His Word, you never have to question, well, is that what He really wanted? Yes, it is what He really wanted. And so you can take comfort that you can know 100% what God's will is for your life. Second, if you take these truths to heart, then anxiety's grip can be loosened on your life. And we're often anxious because we're worried about the future and trying to live it out today. You know, We don't know, look, if I make this choice, is this going to really mess up my life or is it going to make it better? My friend Richie, who's come here a couple times, said God doesn't want us to know the future and he doesn't want us to be anxious about it. He wants us to trust him with the future and focus on doing his will that is revealed in scripture in the present and applying that will to the decisions we have to make. And we can do this because God not only works out everything according to his purpose, but he also causes all things to work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. So that shouldn't then make us passive Well, God's going to work everything out. So who cares? No, we should still be active in it. Yet it gives us confidence. If we know this is God's will, I have two good choices and either one of them's not a sin. Well, then, you know, if you make choice A, you don't have to worry that you really screwed your life up because choice B was really what God wanted. God's going to work either choice out for your good. So... Don't be anxious about the future. Know that as you seek to serve God, if you seek to love Him, He's going to work either decision, or if you have three options, any one of those for your good, His glory. So, yes, plan, think, read, discuss. Think about what you're going to do, but then in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Now, we've already kind of talking about, well, how is God actually going to guide us? But let's turn, and we're going to kind of dip our toe into God's guidance. Then next week, we're going to look through very specifically what would this look like in some concrete examples. But for today, God's guidance. And before we really dive into it, we have to realize that sometimes we don't only want God's will of desire, we want his clear direction. We want what I started with, that clear voice that says, Put on the sock. Put on the shoe. We want a clear impression that says, I want you to do this. So we can say, God led me to dot, dot, dot. And at times, God may do that. But most of the time, we need to remember Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. There it says, "...the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever." And then it says something important. Why did God reveal these things? It ends with that we may do all the words of His law. God revealed Himself so that we can obey Him. So that we can please Him. Christian, God's Word is sufficient to guide you through this life. 2 Timothy 3.15 says, From childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And sadly, many Christians stop their understanding of the Bible at that point. They think, yes, the Bible is good to get people saved. But then there's a lot of other stuff in life that, you know, the Bible, they wouldn't maybe articulate this, but honestly, the Bible is just not enough. We need some other stuff to get us through. And yet, notice what Paul says after this. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God's Word is enough to guide you, so every good thing you're to do, it will help you do. My brother works for a company that fills in oil well holes after they've been drilled and they're through with them, and they fill them with concrete. Sometimes, he tells me, those holes are two miles deep. The ground there has rich oil, but they have to dig down to get it. The Bible is a wealth of resources and knowledge to guide you through life. Yet, tragically, many of us rake across the surface and go, up. Oh, there's not much there. Yet if you would dig down deep into God's Word, you would find a wealth of resources far greater than any crude oil that has ever tapped. Psalm 119.99 says, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. Now notice, he says he knows more than all his teachers, not just because he has God's Word, that's good, but it's because God's Word is his, meditation now biblical meditation is not what you hear of when you may hear your friends say yeah we're going to go meditate biblical meditation isn't getting in a certain position it's not emptying your mind or humming biblical meditation is the exact opposite of that the word literally means to mutter to speak to oneself Now, this isn't meaning you're like that crazy homeless person walking down the street talking to themselves. It means that you're thinking about something over and over. You're regurgitating it. You're going, how does the truth of God's love apply to my parenting, to my finances? How does this apply to this decision I have to make here today? How does this apply to... And you take that wonderful truth of God's love and you just soak in it like a good stew, simmering. And when you meditate on God's Word and God's truth, then you become wise. You see, no matter what you're doing, God's Word has something to say about it. That's why, since I've been here, we've had series on money. We've had series on conflict resolution, on technology, on parenting, on art, on politics. Now, of course... This doesn't mean that you can flip to a verse when you're lost. Do I connect this red jumper cable on my car to their car to that terminal or this one? Well, no, it's not gonna give you details on that type of instruction. It's not gonna tell you if you're a surgeon, do you cut here or cut there? But it will give you important principles to guide you in how you take care of your car, how you should be a surgeon, how you should be a parent. And isn't it rather astounding that God guides His people? I mean, do you realize, do I realize, how small we are? You Imagine for a second, we compared our earth to the sun. Do you know how many times bigger the sun is than the earth? One hundred and ten times. Now, I was reading about this this week because I'm not a scientist, nor the son of a scientist. So one person said, if you imagine the Earth as a quarter, so I don't even know what that is, maybe an inch and a half, the sun would be a nine-foot-tall object next to it. And you know what? The sun is just an average-sized star in the Milky Way galaxy. And do you know how many stars there are in the Milky Way galaxy? They estimate 100 Billion, so we are a tiny little speck on this earth. If you asked of the eight billion people, how many have heard of Wichita Falls? You're lucky if you get probably 0.01 percent. And who knows you in this town? Well, not many. And you're a speck on this earth, which is a tiny thing compared to the sun, and that's a tiny star in a galaxy that has a hundred billion stars. And do you know how many galaxies they estimate exist? Over a hundred billion galaxies. So we're a speck on a speck on a speck. And I could probably say that about a thousand times and we still wouldn't have the right proportions. And yet, you know what God's word says? Psalm 147 forty-seven four: God determines the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. And God cares about you way more than he cares about any star even before we add satellites even before our minds could stagger at these numbers that we just can't even comprehend the psalmist and Psalm eight said this when i look at the heavens when i consider the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you've set in place what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor And God's care for us is seen that not only does he know our names, but he guides us through life. Psalm 139 is this amazing psalm in which the psalmist is rejoicing and kind of in awe of how God is everywhere. And he says in verses 7 through 10, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God leads His people. And this is not just in theory. Remember this in practice. What happened to Israel after they came out of Egypt? What did they have? The pillar of fire to lead them at night and the cloud to lead them by day and you might be thinking well yeah that's great i'd love to wake up and there's a cloud in front of my door and i just follow the cloud and that that's god telling me where to go i mean yeah god used to guide people but what about me here today and yet god has given you something better than that he has given us his spirit notice jesus promised to his disciples in john sixteen thirteen. there it says when the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, I was very careful when I said that. I said, a promise to the disciples, because I don't think that's necessarily a promise to every believer. I think it's a promise to those disciples that God would work through them to write the New Testament. And then, not only do we have the New Testament, but James one five promises to all believers, if any of you lacks wisdom, Let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. You know, God's not a miser who only gives because he has to. God eagerly gives, and he specifically promises here to give wisdom. Now, this doesn't mean there's no effort on our part. Just like we pray, give us this day our daily bread, that does not lead us to then sit on our couch and wait for the man to come knock and deliver bread at our house. In the same way, we pray to God for wisdom, and then as Proverbs exhorts us, we seek for it as for silver and gold, trusting that God will use our efforts in answer to our prayer. So, again, though we're a speck on a speck on a speck, God still lovingly guides His people. And again, next week, we're going to look at some specific ways God can do that, and some specific situations, but I thought it'd be helpful this week to end noting five common ways that Christians will give that God guides them, but I think each one of these is dangerous and some of them are just purely wrong. So first, a common way people talk about discerning God's will is if there is an open door. Now what they often mean by open door is that they find things just opening up. That semi-miraculous things are happening. And the only way they can explain this is God must be working. And so God must be guiding them through this. Yet, I found people can read things the way they want. Because sometimes people will say, you know, I'm really wanting to do this. But I keep finding obstacles. Satan must really not want me to do this. Because he's trying to keep me from doing it. Well, how do we know that Satan's putting some obstacles in this God, and how do we know who's opening the doors and closing them? We don't really know. And what would we say about the times when the doors are closed, and yet we know it's God's will? From 1973 to just last year, the door was closed on ending Roe v. Wade. Should we have said, well, the door's closed. That's not God's will. Well, no, we know God's will because he's told us in his word. So whether the door appears open or closed, you need to see what does God's word say. Second, God does not reveal his will to us through random verses taken completely out of context. Yes, God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. But that is as we understand it in the way he wrote it. And that is has sentences, has paragraphs, has sections, has books. And I'm sure you've all heard this illustration. It's quite funny. But there was a man who wanted to know God's will for him that day. So he got up in the morning. He opened his Bible, flipped, put his hand down, and Matthew 27, 5. And Judas went and hung himself. Well, that was a little shocking. That must not be what God wants. So, all right, flips over. Luke ten thirty-seven. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The man's really starting to get scared, so he flips over. John 13, 27, what you're going to do, go do quickly. Now, of course, this is not what God was wanting him to do for the day, and it's rather humorous, but every Christian would say, well, of course, God doesn't want you to commit suicide. Well, why? Well, because the seventh commandment is clear. You shall not murder. And yet, what are we all doing? We're all recognizing that God's will is always checked by God's word. Now, Proverbs 26.9 has an important warning. It says, Like a thorn that goes into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. This fool here actually has God's word. He has a proverb, but it's harmful to his life. In other words, you can use God's word, such as the Proverbs, and end up not following God's will, but harming yourself. Going against what God's word says. So to know God's will through his word, you have to know how he intended it. A third error in trying to discern God's will is people putting out a fleece. Now you might be thinking, what in the world does that mean? Well, it comes from the Old Testament. There's a story in the book of Judges, chapter 6, of a man named Gideon. And God called him to lead his army. And yet Gideon wasn't sure. So that night he took a sheep's fleece and he put it on the ground and he said, if God is going to lead through me, then in the morning the ground will be dry and the fleece will be wet. And you know what? The next morning it happened. And the story goes on. And so people then take this as though this is warrant for us to do such actions. And yet, if you go and study that passage, I think Gideon's request was actually blasphemous and was simply putting God to the test. Yes, God did answer that request, but that didn't mean God was giving approval to it. And this is really what I was doing with my clock that I mentioned earlier in the sermon. Well, maybe God will speak to me if the number is odd or even. Let me give you another real situation. After seminary, Sarah and I, along with our daughter Elizabeth, flew up to North Dakota for a job interview for a church. I liked it pretty well. Other people in the family didn't care for it so much, but we weren't sure what we were going to do. And the next week, I went shopping and I bought some stuff and I got change. And do you know what state was on one of the quarters? North Dakota. And do you know what that meant? It meant that at some time past, a stamp had been put on it that said North Dakota. That's all it meant. It didn't mean anything. Because you know what? That church then called and said, oh, actually, we wanted to go with another guy. And yet, people try and read into these things. Well, you know what? God speak to me today. Oh, I got the quarter. You know, let's just think about that for a minute. If that's really how God was trying to communicate with me, we would have a very unloving God. He would be sneaky. He would be saying you have to sift through all the coins in your life all the random messages that we see throughout the day and you kind of have to decipher which of these is actually the message and which of these is just well that just happened god is not sneaky we don't have to hunt like a mystery novel trying to find the right clues in life to figure out what he wants god has spoken we don't have to guess he's not sending you secret clues throughout the day He's given you clear instructions in His Word. Well, fourth, you should not try to determine God's will largely through impressions or feelings. Now, I'm not trying to denigrate impressions or feelings. God gave us those, and they're not bad. And God still may lay something on your heart, or you may really feel that God is leading you to do something. Yet my point is, that is not the sure determiner. Those must be tested by God's Word. And we have probably all met someone who uses these type of ways to kind of take aside any critique of their decision. Well, who am I to say anything since God laid on their heart to do that? Well, imagine the woman earlier in the story, She, in the sermon, she felt impressed by God to take the money. Well, I of myself am a nobody, but I can say God's word says you shall not steal. So I don't care if you feel the greatest burden on your heart to do it. You shouldn't do it. God's word is the test for your impressions and feelings. And tied to this, having a sense of peace about a decision is not a warrant that it honors God. Even if you've prayed a lot and have a sense of peace, that doesn't mean it's from God. I've known plenty of people who are in complete peace in the midst of their adultery. I've known others who've had no sense of peace. as They've battled for years not to commit adultery. Your internal peace is not the guide that God has given you for what you should do. Really, in all this, we need to be open to the critique of others. Proverbs fourteen twelve says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Or Proverbs twelve fifteen: The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. So, if you feel like you have a strong impression from God... I'm not saying you should not take that to consideration, but rather I'm saying you should talk to other Christians about it. You should say, what do you think about me doing this? And then you should be open to the fact, if they disagree, to consider that maybe your impression alone isn't enough to guide you. Fifth and lastly, you should not expect God's will through visions, dreams, or words of knowledge. But wait, Pastor, there's examples of this happening in the Bible. Yes, There are, and we could turn to wonderful passages like Acts 13 or other such places and see God's extraordinary guiding of those Christians. And yet, consider the word extraordinary. It literally is extraordinary. It's not the ordinary way God guides His people. You know, I was helped by this again by my friend Richie, because yes, God sometimes does work that way. And I'm not saying we should denigrate all of those, but what is God's normal way of guiding us? Well, what do the New Testament authors like the Apostle Paul do? They give instructions. They say, follow what you want to do in regards to God's will at times, like 1 Corinthians 10, 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, so you have freedom, you don't have to go, you don't have to decline. Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Conscience. Notice Paul didn't say, when they ask you, You should pray and see whether God leads you. You have a feeling of, I should go or not. Rather, Paul gave instructions on before and after, when it would be good, when it wouldn't. And then he says, you have freedom to go or not go. Or consider when the early church needed leaders. What did they do? Well, in Acts 6, they didn't just say, well, let's all just pray and see what names are laid on our heart. No, they had instructions. Consider men who are full of wisdom, spirit, and good repute. And then they made a decision. Or future deacons and elders are qualifications given for them. First Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And so, let's say you have had an extraordinary vision. You've had a dream. You've had a word from God. Then I think you should take it seriously and test it by the word of God. And let me just conclude with this Maybe this has happened to you, but I hope you've never been told God is telling me that you should do this. And then you feel constrained to do something that you don't think you should do. You are not constrained by any other persons telling you God's will for your life. You're constrained by God's word. And so, please don't let people manipulate you into what you think you should do because they have a word from God. Well, Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen wraps us up. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or bad. So may we seek God's will, knowing that he guides us in this life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Lord, who are we that you would take thought of us? More than that, who are we after we rebelled against you that you would forgive us, that you would send your son to die for us, that you would then reach into our lives and fill us with your spirit and give us your word. And so, Lord, would you fill everyone in this room with wisdom from your spirit that we would know what your will is, that we would be wise people in this time and every time that you give us to live so that we might be blessed that we might bless those around us and so that you might be glorified in us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.